0: Welcome to the Man Talk Show. I'm Connor Beaton. This podcast brings together some of the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to help teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. And joining me today is just an absolutely incredible human being. His name is Scott Young. And Scott has a a platform uh, where he talks about learning. He's been on an absolutely incredible adventure he recently uh, wrote a book called ultra learning master hard skills outsmart the competition and accelerate your career so the reason why i wanted to have scott on the show is not just about the book but to actually talk about learning itself so he scott's a a writer who undertakes interesting self-education projects uh, such as get ready for this i kid you not Uh, He he did an MIT challenge where he decided to try and learn MIT's four-year undergraduate computer science curriculum in 12 months without taking any classes and was successful. So we talk about that journey. Uh, He spent a year without speaking English, and uh, we talk a little bit about that as well. And he's done a 30-day portrait drawing challenge to improve his uh, artistic skills. And in April of 2019, he decided to tackle a short but challenging project to learn the basics of quantum mechanics. So so he's done a few things. He's done a few really interesting and courageous projects. He's from a small town in northern Manitoba in Canada. Uh, Really interesting life and story. We kind of talk about his the the basis, the genesis of his life and his background. And uh, one of the things that I really wanted to understand is, you know, can anyone do this? Because... One of the biggest things when I look at these types of concepts of, you know, ultra learning and being able to memorize very quickly and being able to, you know, uh, learn, I think he, he knows conversational like five or six languages, being able to learn some of these languages for the average person and the average life, it can seem a little out of reach, right? I often look at these types of programs and endeavors and I'm like, okay, that's cool. And I don't have time to do that. And I don't think that I'm a good enough learner to do that. And there's all of these stories around that. So Scott and I actually sort of talk about and address a lot of those issues. And we we talk about the different learning styles that people have and the main obstacles that people face when it comes to learning. And this is hugely important. It's hugely important for many reasons. We talk about the education system and some of the flaws that are embedded into the educational system and how it's often not set up properly for our children to learn. Based on how they how they conceptually learn, we talk a little bit about hands on learning, apprenticeship, and Scott shares a little bit about his journey with the the challenge that he undertook with MIT, uh, and then we talk about uh, we we talk a little bit about meta learning and focus, and we dive into how these two topics can be used uh, for you on your day to day life and how to be more effective in your learning in some of the projects that you're undertaking, whether it's in your career or your business or your family. So uh, I'm going to bring him on here in a second, but just a quick reminder for all the guys that are out there, head on over to Facebook, join the Man Talks community, some great conversations happening there. And a quick reminder to sign up for one of the men's weekends that we have coming up. They are filling up incredibly fast. We have some great men that are coming out Uh, and ladies, I haven't forgot about you. We're actually going to have a program launching for you soon. I've had so many women reach out and saying, you know, when is there something for us? When is there a weekend for us? And so, uh, there might be something special coming for you soon, but guys head on over to mantalks.com, uh, join one of the weekends. They are incredibly, incredibly powerful. They are personally my favorite part of what we get to do. We dive into the shadow. So many of you have, uh, you know, tuned into one of the a podcast about a month and a half ago, where I talked extensively about the shadow. Uh, the weekend is really all about shadow work, and we do a deep dive into what sabotages you, where your inner critic is coming from, what gets in the way of you being able to accomplish your goals, uh, shift your habits, have a better sex life, be more connected with your partner, or actually claim and and, and sort of take your purpose into your own hands. So. That's what the weekend's all about. I hope you check it out. Uh, so without any further delay, without any further ado, please welcome Mr. Scott Young.
1: Oh, well, it's great to be here, Connor.
0: Yeah. You know, listen, I <laughs> I got a copy of your of your book, uh, Ultra Learning, and they had the little like rundown. And, you know, I think I had agreed to have you on the show. And I didn't, to be honest, I didn't really know too much about you. I just, mm-hmm. you know, the I think you're uh, someone on your team had sent off sort of a bit of a description. I was like, oh, this sounds good interesting topic and that's kind of cool. And then I remember getting the rundown of, uh, you know, getting the sort of like piece of paper with the rundown of what you've done and some of your accomplishments and and just a bit of your life. And I literally interrupted my wife from whatever she was doing. I think she was working on her computer sitting on the couch and I was like, "Can you just listen to this?" And I proceeded to read the whole thing off. And she was like, "Holy, holy crap! Who the hell is this guy?" And I was like, "Somebody I'm going to have on the podcast." And so I am so excited and honored to have you on the show today. First, before we dive into your book, before we dive into some of the concepts that you've created, before we dive into you know some of the depth of your journey, I, I have to ask the the people's question, as I'm starting to call it, harkening uh, back to you know Dwayne the Rock Johnson on WWE, um, but yeah, so tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today.
1: Well, first off, thanks, Connor. I really appreciate those uh, those kind words about, uh, well, about the bio, I guess, that was sent to you and and about the book. So actually, the story I want to tell is, is I, I write about it in the book. And it really was a, a pivotal moment for me that uh, convinced me that the, sort of taking unorthodox ways to approaching learning specifically, but really all the projects you take in your life, can have really profound impacts. And so it was taking place when I was uh, I was in university and I was on an exchange in France. So I was living in France and I had this idea that, you know what, I was going to become fluent in French. So I was going to live in France and, you know, order baguette and drink wine and speak uh, parfait français and and it was going to be all great. And when I got there, like most people who arrive in a new country, when they don't speak the language, they start speaking in English to people. And it wasn't after long before I realized, hey, I'm living in France, but all of my friends around me speak in English, uh, even the French ones. And I didn't really feel like I was progressing that much. And it was a little bit disappointing. And, and, you know, part of me just thought, well, maybe, maybe a year isn't enough. Maybe you actually need a lot more time to learn a language. And maybe I was just being too ambitious. And around this time, I was kind of griping about this to a friend I know from Canada back home. And he's like, well, have you have you heard of Benny Lewis? And I was like, who's Benny Lewis? And he was like, well, this is a guy who goes to countries. Well, not for a year, like I was going on exchange for, but only three months. And after that three months, he can speak the language. And I was like, well, that sounds like BS. Like, I don't, I don't know, like, that sounds totally made up. And I went to visit him and I got to sort of know his sort of approach and his his strategy. And it was just clear to me that he just thought about the problem differently than I did. That he didn't look at it as, okay, how do I, you know, sit at home and, and read my book and study those vocabulary words. And, ooh, maybe if I'm ready, I'll go talk to someone. He would have like no knowledge and he would go up and start talking to strangers. And so this approach obviously is is it's scary, it's hard to do. But the outcome was that over the last, you know, several years, well, now I, I, it's hard to keep track, but I feel like he can probably speak more than 10 languages now. And so this was such a, a pivotal moment for me, because it really showed to me, first of all, that, you know, intense learning, this intense self directed learning, I call ultra learning in the book, was something that you could do something that a person could do. Because until that point, all of my experiences was with education and learning had been mostly through school, and then the second thing that I thought was really interesting is that he, he did these challenges. So he would sort of set this big project, this big ambitious project for himself. And that, um, that project uh, of, or that sort of habit of setting projects uh, was something that I, it really stuck with me. And I, I did change my approach and I do feel like I was able to learn French uh, decently well in my, my first day in France. But what was really interesting is that a few years later, I had another opportunity to go traveling and I decided to do it the the Benny Lewis way. And so I went with a friend and we decided we were not going to speak English from the very first day. So we landed in Spain and it was all Spanish from that point forward, even though we didn't know very much Spanish at that point. And the funny thing was, is that going through this process, which I thought was going to be terrifying and really hard, even though I knew that it would probably work from having seen Benny Lewis was that it was actually a lot easier that doing it this way, doing this sort of immersive approach because you don't have to deal with all the people trying to speak to you in English all the time because you set that standard right from the beginning. They actually learned Spanish really well and and we made friends and we had such a great time and it was actually a lot easier to learn it. So uh, I've done a number of projects now that have involved this kind of ultra learning concept and in doing this book, I, I found a lot of other stories of people like Benny Lewis who've just done incredible things And it really sort of showed me that this alternative approach to learning, which is not only, you know, outside of school and outside of, you know, formal institutions, but also pursued with a real intensity and a real look at, you know, how can I do this in the most effective way possible, not just the most convenient way possible uh, can be a lot more exciting, a lot more fun and really get a lot better results than the approach most people take.
0: Interesting. I I like it. So, you you know, one of the things that came to my mind when I first, you know, like really read through that rundown of you and who you are was what must your childhood have been like? Like, what were you like the really like nerdy guy? Were you the guy that was just like the average student? Like, tell me a little bit about your experience in junior high and high school, because I think some of the times, like I, I, I'm going I'm to be honest with you, because I've you mm-hmm. know I've seen like the, the Tim Ferris is out there. I've seen the guys that like you know have done some of some not the same things. Because like your your ultra learning concept that you've created is mm-hmm. it, like truly you know you have the the nine principles. I've I've gone through it and it truly is unique. But I think one of the things that's challenging when the average person sees something like this is like, oh man, this is. Uh, it, it seems like a bit of a far stretch from ourselves, mm-hmm. you know, and so give me a little bit of background who tell me about, like, 14 year old Scott.
1: <laughs> well, I think you probably were right. I, I was definitely more of a, a nerdier kid, definitely more on the shyer introverted end. And, and I liked reading books. And I got interested in sort of self improvement, not specifically learning uh, around when I was 15. Because I had this idea that I, I wanted to start a business and and I wanted to get into that. And so for me, the idea of learning things and picking up a little things here and there on my own was sort of always part of my life. And I did well in school, but in the same sense, I wasn't in like some kind of elite, uh, you know, I didn't go to an Ivy League school. I went to a very middle of the road school or uh, middle of the road, um, institution in in Canada. And, you know, I did well in school, but I wasn't the top of my class. And I I feel like, uh, I did, you know, succeed and I did have uh, a decent time in school, but I don't think that I was some kind of, you know, superstar genius or, or anything, uh, particular like that. I think it was just sort of some chance encounters that led me to, you know, like, as I mentioned, like encountering Benny Lewis and finding out about these different approaches combined with a kind of like, Hey, you know, maybe, Maybe I could give that a shot. And as I talk about in the book, there's obviously people who are extremely smart and they do things that are, are extremely uh, powerful and accomplished. But I found when I was doing the research for this book that a lot of the principles that they use are really universal. So even if you don't expect to become Albert Einstein by applying the principles of ultra learning, you can still use them to you know get good at something that matters to you.
0: Mm, I like that. So how, how much would you say that creativity and artistry plays into some of this, because I think as I've gone through, mm-hmm. you know, some of your some of your principles and you know, you mentioned Albert Einstein there and, you know, he was an incredibly yeah. gifted I in some ways artist, but he was a very gifted, creative mind who happened to also understand mathematics in a way that few people do. But tell me a little bit about how you see creativity and artistry fitting into this methodology of learning.
1: So the first way I, I'd like to talk about artistry and creative creativity is in the kind of learning process itself, because I think that a lot of us are the, the message that I wanted to try to give across in this book is that a lot of us are background when we think about learning. Is we think about school, and we often have had bad experiences in school. Either you struggled in school and it's stressful. You know, you still have that recurring nightmare about showing up to the exam and not being prepared. Or maybe you did okay in school and then you got to the real world and started working a job and you're like, hey, actually, a lot of this doesn't matter. A lot of this I don't use. And so for me, what I wanted to talk about is that I feel school and the formal institutions that we learn academic subjects is a very narrow type of learning. Not to say that it's not important or not to s- dismiss it entirely. I think there's a lot of great things you can learn in school. But that there's so much more about learning. And a lot of the things that people do really are learning projects. But they've been so, you know, brought up to think of of school as learning and learning is going to classes and learning is having a teacher lecture to you. Whereas they don't think about, you know, hey, I'm starting a business, and I'm trying to figure it out. And, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, checking out this thing. And okay, maybe I'll try this, and I'll go back to that. They don't see that as necessarily a learning project or you know they're you know tinkering or they're you know learning how to repair a faucet at their home or or these kinds of things. They're all learning projects, and so we're really spending most of our lives learning how to do new things, and the efficiency with which we do it is a big determinant of our success. So when we're talking about creativity and artistry, the first thing I'd like to bring across is just expanding our notion of what learning means and and what it means to learn things well requires a kind of creative mind because so many of us have been kind of drilled into this. Formal education approach in school. The second thing that was fascinating about creativity and, and artistry was just that when I was digging into some of the stories of the book, and in particular, um, Richard Feynman, who I, I talk about, who is a Nobel Prize winning physicist, but almost also kind of famous for being. Uh, a bit of an iconoclast, and playing the bongo drums and lock picking at the Manhattan Project and other kind of quirks. And the thing that really interested me reading his story is that everyone kind of talks about how he's such this creative genius. You know, he won a Nobel Prize, and he's obviously very smart. But when you drill down into his background, you see that he's actually spent a lot of time acquiring a lot of patterns in mathematics and science that allows him to reason about things, and that, that acquisition was, you know, obviously through his education, but also through playing with concepts and not giving up when he got frustrated and really kind of tinkering with things. And so it really showed to me as well that if you want to be creative, if you want to be, you know, whether it's in an artistic field or whether it's in a technical field, a lot of that comes from tinkering with things, from having a deep experience and from doing the kind of stuff that I talk about in in Ultra Learning.
0: Yeah, you know, I I wanted to touch on it because I think it's such an important piece of of this puzzle. Mm -hmm. You know, I think I, like when I went through school, I just genuinely didn't like it. And learning became something Mm -hmm. that I was not necessarily an advocate of, you know, because it just, it seemed rote Mm -hmm. and repetitive and boring. And I didn't understand the point of it. And, you know, I was average at best most of the time. And so, you know, I love, but I loved creativity and, and I didn't feel like some of the classes that I did the best in were usually the classes where the teacher could position something in a more creative way. And I think oftentimes what I've seen from, you know, a certain subset or certain archetypes of people is that they cut themselves off from learning methodologies like this because they don't understand the inherent creative sort of genius or artistry that is entrenched in the process. And that it's really trying to teach you how to, you know, like, how, how does take this uh, methodology and bring yourself to it, if that makes sense, rather than just trying to go through and, and you know, sort of do this piece by piece, but really bringing yourself to the methodology and being creative with it and, and having it be an extension of your own personal expression. So, okay, let me, let me just kind of dig into a few of the pieces. Why uh, you know, one of the things that you that you touch on in the book is why ultra learning matters. Why, in your opinion, does it matter?
1: So one of the things I'll just give a little bit of a backstory to this. So, um, you know, around the time I was doing some of these projects, I had created a few uh, little mini courses on my website for students. And one of the things that surprised me is that a lot of the people joining the courses weren't students. They were people who were professionals. And that kind of surprised me because my sort of instinct was, well, if you make something about studying, it's going to be mostly people who are students who who enroll or or get the product. And what that kind of made me realize is that there's a real hunger, real thirst for being able to cope with all the changing things of the world. So technology is just the perfect example of that. It's now kind of fashionable to be like, well, everyone should learn to code, but it's not even so much just coding. You need to be able to learn leadership skills. You need to be able to learn communication skills. You need to be able to deal with all the varying things that are changing constantly. And this requires sort of a new approach to learning. So that was sort of a bit of an inspiration to direct this book towards non-students and directed towards people who, you know, like you and I, are school is a bit of a distant memory, and maybe not even the most pleasant one. And so when I, I started doing the research, though, I found that if you look at, you know, these trends in the world today, one of them is the trends in the economy. Uh, there's an MIT economist, David Octor, and he has this phenomenon he know, he calls skill polarization. And basically, you've all heard the story that income inequality is rising in North America, that the rich are getting richer. But what he noticed is that it's not actually that income inequality is rising across the board. Instead, it's going in two phases. So the lower part is getting smushed together and the upper part is spreading out. And that's exactly what you would think if you imagine that a lot of middle skilled jobs are getting turned into jobs that can be done by computers. So you're typical travel agent or bookkeeper or things are being replaced by software and the jobs that are being coming up in their stead are either lower skilled jobs that don't require a lot of training but maybe require human interaction but they don't pay very much or they are jobs that require sophisticated skills so you need to be good with computers you need to be good with these sort of more advanced ideas and so this sort of trend in the economy is basically saying that look, if you want to do well in life in the future, a lot of the assumptions that, you know, our generation was grown up on that, you know, you just go to college and you get your degree and you'll have a good job and you'll, you know, you'll have a good life and you just work your whole life and you can retire and be happy um, are sort of eroding and that you actually have to be constantly learning. You have to constantly be upgrading your skills. And so, The reason that I think ultra learning matters is I don't feel like the educational institutions have really met pace with this. I mean, tuition is skyrocketing. Student debt is out of control. Most people can't quit their job to go back to school for four years. So and even if they could, a lot of the skills that schools teach aren't the ones that they need in the job. And so ultra learning, I think, fills that gap because it provides a road to dealing with these challenges of, whoa, okay, actually, if I want to do well in this job, I have to get good at a lot of things that are hard. What's the right way to do that? And what's the right way to do that efficiently so that I'm not, you know, burning myself out and driving myself crazy trying to keep up with everything?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that makes I think that makes a ton of sense. And I like the way that you put it out there. So just a few questions on that. What from your perception, because mm-hmm. you've done, you know, some incredible work and we're about to get into the MIT challenge because you, you decided to try and learn uh, MIT's four year undergraduate undergraduate computer science curriculum in 12 months, which without taking any classes, which is to me, I was like, okay, (laughs) I definitely, if nothing else, need to know about that. But so you've, you've had, uh, you know, direct contact with some pretty prestigious institutions you've seen and studied the methodologies of learning. Where do you feel like our traditional education systems fall short on being able to teach children and, and young adults how to actually learn?
1: So I want to start out by prefacing this, that I did a lot of research on learning and there's a lot of educational research out there. And so I'm not claiming that, you know, there's some easy fix that schools can implement and all of a sudden they can be much better schools. I think a lot of the problems with our education system, educational system are systemic. And in some cases... It's not even that schools are necessarily using a bad approach, but when the learner is not engaged, when the learner is not motivated. So you were just saying, you know, you're learning a lot of things by rote and you don't know why you're learning it. Well, there probably was a reason you were learning it that way. And someone had an idea that this is the right way to teach it, but you weren't aware of that. And so for me, uh, one of the big things is engaging with the learner, with the person who is actually has to learn the information because Even if you have a great teacher, at the end of the day, if you're learning something, you're going to be the one to learn it. So if you're not motivated, if you don't know why you're learning it, if you're not approaching it the right way, it's going to be quite difficult. Uh, In terms of the actual practice of education, I actually think we took a bit of a step backwards when we made schools the dominant paradigm for learning, because before that, it used to be apprenticeships. And if you look at how human beings actually learn things, which is typically by doing in a real context, or by watching other people do in a real context, apprenticeships don't work that bad. I mean, there are certainly some skills that are harder to learn through an apprenticeship without some kind of background training. I don't expect everyone to just show up to a You know, theoretical physicist's office and watch them scratch things on a piece of paper and figure out how uh, string theory works. But in the same sense, apprenticeship and that model of being in the real situation and practicing is something that has kind of faded away in favor of classroom learning where you sit in a class someone explains it to you without really showing you the context that it applies and then expects you to memorize things for a test and i think all of those situations the idea that there are classrooms the idea that we you know teach things in a certain way are not only somewhat inefficient for a lot of subjects but they are also things that it's really hard to change because it's kind of built into what we think schools are. So it's not something that, you know, I think that there's some easy proposal that can fix education, but from a learner's perspective, from the person who might be reading this book or listening to this conversation, there are things you can do to learn a lot better that don't look like school, that look like doing things, that look like taking on ambitious projects. But if you look at them as uh, with the lens of learning, you can approach them more efficiently.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's such an interesting uh, point. I love what you're saying about apprenticeship. Like I think that is such an important piece that we are severely lacking in our society. And not just from an educational standpoint, but I think from, you know, a business model standpoint, it's very challenging to find someone often to go and apprentice with, depending on your skill set. Like you look at, I look at something like the coaching industry, as an example, the majority of the programs that are out there that are 10, 20, you know, 30, $50,000 for people to go and do. They actually don't give you any real hands-on experience, right? You go and sort of they're they're very classroom-based, mm-hmm. and that's always fascinated mm-hmm. me. And I've never been interested in that. And I and <laughs> and, and and I've always sort of rejected yeah. that. It's like, how are you charging fifty thousand dollars to someone and not fucking teaching them how to actually do what you're doing? Like you're disabling them in some way, and you're not actually providing the value. I actually didn't really understand fully until you just laid that out because my my form of how i've learned my craft was through apprenticeship was you know years of working with someone who is proficient in Jungian psychology and positive psychology and cognitive behavioral therapy and and using those tools Mm. on myself and then being able to bring those into the work that i do with men and women and couples and and i hadn't really able been able to articulate it quite like you have, but you, I think, I feel like you just unlocked something really important for me. So I, I thank you <laughs> so much for that. Well, no,
1: no problem. And you know what? I want to just add one thing that, uh, I sent some review copies of this book out and obviously I wanted to pick stories that people would find interesting and inspiring. So often they're kind of extreme examples, but one of the funny comments I got back is people read through. It, it's like, Hey, you know, actually I was doing something like this when I learned this other thing that I did really well. Like I never thought of it as a learning project, but wow, this is actually how it worked for me in the past. And that's, I almost want to, you know, you scream at them Is like, of course, this is how learning always works. <laughs> the problem is that we do it haphazardly. The problem is that when it works, it's sort of kind of random that you, you get really good at something because just the stars aligned and the situation was right. And that's why you learned it well. And all these things that you didn't learn well, you didn't realize why you didn't learn well. And maybe you even blamed yourself or you blamed your teacher or, or whatever. And what I want to give people in this book is these are the principles for learning almost anything you could take something that maybe you haven't learned that well in the past and be like, well, how can I tweak these? How can I change the environment? How can I change the application of these principles? And I mean, I've applied this to things that, like I mentioned my my journey with French, that once you turn some of these dials, it's like, oh, wow, this is actually way easier than what I was doing before the problem is that most people just don't realize what those dials are and how to turn
0: mm, them. yeah so good okay well yeah, i think i just like wrote down a little note here about <laughs> apprenticeship program because i've been i've had mm-hmm. a bunch of people come to me and be you know asking like how do i learn how to do what you're doing and i'm like i actually don't really know and it, that was like a little light bulb moment of like oh yeah apprenticeship like literally just teaching people how to do anyway uh let's talk about mit and you know as a As a kid, as a boy from a small town, I think you said in Northern Manitoba, which I, which I love, by the way, I love that, you know, we're repping, (laughs) repping Canada pretty hard. Mm -hmm. Um, What was it like to, first off, maybe I just want to ask, why did you Mm -hmm. embark on this, on this journey of trying to do MIT's four year undergraduate computer science curriculum in 12 months?
1: So I know, obviously, when you're listening to it, it sounds like kind of a crazy project, but I didn't come to it overnight. This wasn't something that I just, you know, in a fit of arrogance, just decided, yeah, I'm going to do this and and just go for it one day. It, It started after I met Benny Lewis, actually. And it wasn't specifically his language learning strategies, but the way he approached learning generally, and more specifically, the idea that he set these like super ambitious projects And, uh, and he blogged about them while he was doing them. And and I had a blog at the time and I was thinking, oh, you know, maybe I could do something like that, or I could try something. And it was after I got back from France, I, I graduated from school and I had studied business and I had gone into business because I mentioned, you know, earlier in the episode that, Uh, When I was 15, I wanted to run my own business. And so I thought, well, you go to business school if you want to run your own business. And it was only after completing a degree uh, in five years, I might add, that um, I realized actually business school is mostly about being a middle manager in a very large corporation. It has almost nothing to do with running your own
0: business. And I was a bit bummed about it. You did your business degree in five (laughs) years, but you completed MIT's computer science program in 12 months?
1: (laughs) (laughs) In, in my defense, in my defense, uh, it wasn't because I took an extra long way. I did uh, what's called an honors degree. So you do, it's supposed to be four years and a little bit, but I did a year as an exchange. So it uh, stretched it out a little bit longer. I wasn't able to take full-time classes while I was in France, or, or at least credit for full-time classes. But yes, it was it was over five years. It wasn't four years. I love and, it. I love, um... I love that it just shows, it shows <laughs>
0: me, like, the dichotomy of like learning systems. Anyways, continue.
1: No, yes, of course. So um, I was, uh, I, I graduated and I was like, well, well, this kind of isn't what I wanted, but at the same time, I don't really want to go back to school. And I had been, when I had first gone into college, I had been sort of making this dilemma, should I go into computer science or business? And as a nerdy high schooler who lived in a small town with very few other people, I, I did learn a little bit of programming and I was interested in video games and stuff like that. And, and later it was sort of, well, this is a tool for becoming an entrepreneur, becoming a programmer, or at least understanding how technology works, if not becoming a full-fledged programmer. And so at this time, I was thinking, you know what, I'd like to maybe go back, and I was looking in some options about studying again, but they all just seemed kind of bleh. And um, around this time, I stumbled across this course that MIT published at uh, MIT's OpenCourseWare, and that two things stood out to me. First, that this class taught by MIT that has these lectures available online was much better than any class I'd ever taken, which, I mean, is a testament to MIT. I mean, it does cost them a lot to attend MIT. It's a very prestigious institution. They have some of the best teachers in the world. And I was like, wow, this is actually better than almost any class I I actually paid for to attend. And then the second thing is that I was digging around is that, wow, there's actually a lot of classes here. Like maybe all the classes in a degree And so that was about six months of looking into like, what if I tried to do a degree instead of going back to school going online? And, and at the time, perhaps, you know, a little naively. So I was thinking, well, this might be the next big thing. This like doing online degrees like this, where you just, you know, use free material online to get your education might be the next big thing. So for me, I was almost kind of like, I want to be the first one to do this. This could be my kind of claim to fame. It wasn't even so much an idea that I thought I was doing something special. It was just the idea that I thought I might... I can't believe any no one's ever tried to do this before. And so um, I did some research and I put it together. And I realized that obviously pursuing it exactly like an MIT student was out of the question. Some of the classes, for instance, involved working with a robot that only MIT has. So I'm not gonna be able to do that class. And in other situations, uh, there were other limitations. So for instance, MIT students are expected to carry out a thesis project. Well, I don't have a thesis advisor, so I can do a programming project on my own, uh, but I can't really uh, do it exactly like an MIT student. However, the final exams were typically the actual final exams from the class, and they posted the solution. So it seemed kind of fairly straightforward that, well, I could write the exam and then grade myself using the, the rubric they provided. And uh, I added to that later that a lot of the programming assignments also had sufficient materials that I could do the little programming exercises that they included in the class. So if they, I remember one of them was doing computer graphics, and I'm rendering some kind of teapot or, or something like that. And you know, so I could write the little code and then look, does my teapot image look like the teapot image that they provided for the, you know, what the program's supposed to do. And then I could confirm myself that I understood how to write the the program. And as I started going through this, I did a bit of a test class. And I thought, you know what, actually, this is a bit faster than when I was doing it in school, because when I was doing it in school, you'd have to wait for each lecture, you'd have to submit your assignment, wait for it to come back, there was a lot of group projects. And as I started piecing it together, I thought, you know what, why not take a page from Benny Lewis? I know it's a little ridiculous, but maybe let's try something that's really ambitious. Maybe I should try something that I think is maybe like at the edge of possibility. And I, I decided to set it for 12 months. And I did work like crazy, but I did actually get the um my sort of self-set MIT challenge done in the 12 months and it was a big start for me of just realizing how much potential this kind of approach
0: to learning has. That's pretty amazing, man. So, (laughs) so you did a total of, what was it? 33 courses? 33 classes. I did 32 in the year
1: because I did one of the classes before I started as kind of my test class. So 32 in the one year period of time, but 33 in total.
0: Incredible. And, and in terms of, in terms of one of the, one of the biggest surprises and one of the biggest challenges that you faced during that time, what would you say that is?
1: Oh, geez. Um, Well, there were lots of like, oh, wait, what do I do now? Kind of moments uh, in the middle of the project. And this was also like there was a bit more pressure because I would already announced that I was going to do these things. And I did try to do my research and I wasn't just rushing into it. But some things you only discover when you start doing them. So for one of the classes, there were no recorded lectures and there was no textbook. And the only notes they had were just like a slideshow that was meant to accompany the lectures. So you're just looking at this slideshow and it's just got like a few words and like a symbol and like, okay, this and this. And you're like, hmm, okay, I've got to try to make sense of this in order to learn the class. Now, luckily for that class, it had, uh, that was a class called computation structures, which sounds really abstract. But basically, it's how would you make a computer out of Wires and transistors and stuff. So it was a really fascinating class because before that, I had, you know, you, you sort of have some idea of how a computer works, but this is like, oh no, this is how you would actually make a computer. And uh, it was it was an interesting class. And they had this really nice software suite. So even though the lectures and the material weren't super great, I had this program that I could play around with. And that would be how I would learn how to, you know, set up the circuits. And it could tell you whether you had done it correctly or not. And, um, and you could set up things like, you know, how to add two numbers using the wires and circuits, and then even up to building a simple Um, CPU, uh, with that approach. So there were lots of little challenges like that, where, oh, wait, what do I do now that there's not as much material. But the big thing that struck me for doing this approach was just that it was actually, I think, a lot easier than it sounds. I don't want to say that MIT classes are easier, doing them for a year is easy. But I do want to say that, you know, my prior going into that was that, well, the only way you could really learn this stuff is by going to university. And I really left with the impression that well, you can really learn anything as well as you like. And often you can, you know, there's resources to do it so that, you know, going back to school is something that maybe for you and in, in your situation, it's the right thing to do, but it's certainly not necessary for learning almost anything.
0: Yeah, really interesting, man. Uh, you know, I think one of the, yeah, I, I kind of want to get into the, mm-hmm. the, the, the process of ultra learning. And, you know, I would love for, sure. for you to sort of use me as like the the dummy here <laughs> that you get to sort of educate on this topic, because I, you know, I think one of the things, and we're not going to have time to go through the whole thing, obviously. And yeah. we don't want to give, I don't want to give away the farm. I want people to go check out this book, <laughs> but I, I do think that You know, one of the things that comes up for me in this is that, you know, just speaking to you about this whole process, I realized that and maybe this is very similar for a lot of people. I realized that for years, especially, you know, through elementary and junior high and high school, I had a narrative internally that I was a a quote unquote bad learner and so when it's come mm-hmm. when it's really and and it's interesting right because we look at things like finances we look at things like sex and relationships or dating and and many of us can have a a story around not being good with money or not being good in the bedroom uh, but I, you know i think one of my challenges was i'm not a quote unquote good learner and one of the mm-hmm. things that really allowed me to to rewrite that story was was my apprenticeship with you know multiple uh leaders and facilitators in their own field and so for anyone that's out there if you feel like you have a story where you are a where you believe or have been told that you're a quote unquote bad learner i would challenge you to to look at beginning to rewrite that narrative and story so So Scott, (laughs) where do we start? Mm -hmm. I think like your, your first principle is around metal learning. Can you just describe for me in the, in the most layman terms? And again, I just want you to like, imagine Mm -hmm. that I am like the worst learner in the world, which, uh, which apparently
1: (laughs) I highly doubt that that. as
0: as I've just unfolded in my past, that's how I viewed myself, but um, can you right. just unpack what meta learning is and, and where we need to start?
1: Sure, sure, okay. so well, the first thing I'd like to start with is that a lot some people will view themselves as a bad learner, but usually the way that manifests is that I'm bad at x. so you said it yourself, I'm bad with money or I'm bad with sex, but really, these are things that we learn how to do. so often, what it manifested is, oh, I'm no good with languages or I'm no good with math or I'm not good with dancing. I have two left feet or i'm not I'm not athletic and and so these beliefs are usually about very specific things. And I don't want to say that there's no differences in people. I don't want to say that, you know, obviously, I think someone, uh, Michael Jordan is going to be better at basketball than I am, even with the same approach to learning basketball. But I do think there's considerable flexibility and a lot more than we imagine, because often it's just that you didn't approach it the right way or you weren't given the opportunity to approach it the right way. And so you develop this sort of negative feeling about it that, well, I'm not good at this. I might as well focus on something else. And, you know, maybe that's fine, but at the same time, I think it's always good to check those assumptions. So meta learning is the first principle of ultra learning. And I decided to break the book up into principles as opposed to, you know, step one, do this step two, do that, because everything you learn is going to be a little different. And so it's all about recognizing, oh, this is where this applies and this is how we can apply it. And so I see these principles as being like the dials of your learning approach and you can tweak them in order to get a little bit better results and and often a lot better results. So meta learning, if you've heard the term meta applied to something before, usually refers to something being about itself. So meta learning in this case is learning about learning, or in particular, learning how to learn whatever subject you're wanting to learn. And this is very important if you're going to teach yourself something, because when you don't have a teacher, you kind of have to decide the roadmap, even if it's just, okay, I'm going to pick this teacher, or I'm going to pick this book to study from. And so one of the things that I can uh, sort of say as as an example is that often a lot of times when you are behind in the class. So the classic example I think of is is when I was in a a first year programming class. So this is in my uh, actual undergrad. And I noticed that a lot of people who were quite smart were like, well, I'm no good at programming. And the reason is that a lot of other kids in the class had been doing programming in high school on their own. And so they came to the class with all this knowledge about maybe not what was being taught in the class, but how programming works. How do you learn programming? What are the kinds of things you have to think about? And other people were completely from scratch. And so those people, completely from scratch told themselves, well, I'm not good at learning programming, or I'm not good at this when really what was happening is that these other students in the class had already acquired all this knowledge beforehand. I was in a similar situation when I first went to France that I was put in a French class where I didn't realize it until a few weeks in that all the other students had taken like multiple years of French classes and I had taken just a little bit, you know, in grade school in in growing up in Canada. And so when I was doing much worse than everyone and kind of feeling bad that I wasn't good at learning French and maybe I wasn't good at learning languages, I wasn't aware of this sort of enormous advantage just from prior experience that other people had. So the process of meta learning is really to do your research to look into how have other people learned the skill. So you can do that by talking to people, you can do that through sort of an apprenticeship model by watching other people You can do this for career skills. Um, in other cases, you can start with something, try it around and then kind of examine the learning process. Like, you know, if you've been playing around with Duolingo Spanish for a couple months, can you actually speak anything to someone? Like this is an example of like using meta learning to check and, and direct your process. And there's a lot more that I talk about for meta learning in the book. But that's basically the idea that if you start thinking about the process of learning, you'll often spot, oh, this is what I'm doing wrong, rather than, oh, I'm bad at
0: it. And during your process or during your, your sort of studies of how people learn, mm-hmm. did you come across some consistency of where people get uh, where people sort of get hung up on or where people stumble, like what are the obstacles in people 's learning
1: so there's a lot uh I think it really depends on the situation and for some skills, people will almost never do mistake x let's say, and then for others, they almost always do it so i have a I have a few, and this is sort of a lot of the principles of the ultra learning. Are themselves kind of an inverse that they're like, avoid this mistake. So one of them, uh, which is very common, if you spent a lot of your time thinking about learning in school is uh, a principle I call directness. And if you look in the literature on uh, psychology, it's actually amazing that psychologists have known for like hundreds of years, that um, for well, about 100 years, I should say I should correct myself, that People tend not to learn super general skills. So the the model of education, and this is kind of why we have schools in the first place, was that if you teach a kid Latin, that will just make them good at languages. Or if you teach them geometry, they will be good at critical thinking. And what we've learned is that that's usually not the case, that if you want to be good at something, you have to actually practice it fairly close to the situation you want to apply it in. And that if you try to transfer it, meaning you have to try to take something you've learned in, let's say, the classroom and apply it to real life, you lose a lot that a lot of people, if they've, let's say, learned how to do something in a math class will not instinctively apply it in real situations. You know, I have a funny example of this. Um, I, I run a business and One of my associates, we were trying to calculate sales tax. And it was a situation where we were supposed to be charging the sales tax on top of the product price, but our software couldn't do that. So we had to kind of retroactively, what was the sales tax we should have charged? And he was like, well, sales tax is 14%. So I'll just take 14% of our sales and that's our sales tax. And I was like, no, 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 no. You can't do it that way. It's like, you know, you have to just get your algebra out. It's like, uh, you know, whatever we charge has to include the sales tax. So it's one plus 14% equals the You know the total thing, and you have to divide it out. So it's, it's actually a little less than 14%. And that's something that if you were to write it out as an algebra formula, I mean, it would be something that you would have been doing in grade eight or grade seven, like it's something that this person, at least who's studied in university, should easily have gotten, but he wasn't able to transfer it. And this is surprisingly common that you learn something in school and you might even be able to do stuff way more complicated than a simple, like, you know, sales tax formula, but you don't apply it in the real situations. And so directness is an example where I always suggest start with the real situation you want to apply it with, if possible. If it's not possible, like if you're a pilot and you're not allowed to go in the plane until you rack up a certain number of hours, you want to do things that are similar. So you want to be practicing the same kinds of skills. So directness is one example. Um, There's a bunch of other ones. One of them is retrieval. A lot of students think the way to study is just by rereading and reviewing things when research shows that that's not actually how you remember things. You have to actually practice recalling it without seeing the answer in front of you. So there's a bunch of these little obstacles that if you add them up, and you are using the wrong approach, you can end up not learning something at all, despite being fairly smart. And if you're using them appropriately, you can learn quite well, uh, or much faster than other people if they're using a less effective approach.
0: Yeah, interesting. I think one of the things that that has stood out to me is that the, you know, in the little research that I've done about learning is that there seems to be, you know, absorption, retention, and application of the, of the knowledge that, that we're learning. Do you feel like people struggle with one or more of those things? Like, do you feel like people have like a, a more, uh, sort of like mental trap that they fall into?
1: Well, again, I, I will reiterate what I think the issue is for a lot of people is they get kind of put down a path that has a particular, let's say, cognitive obstacle, something that makes learning really hard. And they don't recognize it. Either they they can't because, you know, it's the way their school is set up. So they can't get around it. Or um, they don't realize that, they should be doing something differently. And again, then they ascribe their failures to, well, I'm bad at this. So the language learning was just such a perfect example that if you spend most of your time studying at home and you very rarely practice it with other people, you're not going to be good at the language. And conversely, if you start with sort of an immersion requirement where, okay, I'm not going to be speaking English. I mean, that sounds difficult and, and it is difficult, but once you start applying it, you get a lot better. And so it gets easier and easier. And then the converse of that is that you're getting so much practice that even someone who's extremely studious, even someone who's spending like tons of time studying they're after work every single day, spending several hours studying, you're still going to get more practice than them, you're still going to learn faster, but it's going to be a lot easier, it's not going to feel like studying, it's just going to feel like living your life. And similarly, if you're learning, let's say programming, and you're doing a bunch of classes, and you're trying to study for tests, you may learn less than the person who's, you know what, I want to make an app. And so I'm going to learn what I need to do to put together this app and, and put it in place and, and, and start working on it that way. So there's a lot of stuff that I, I think about in terms of not so much absorption, what were your categories, absorption, retention, and application, mm-hmm. but just that the way the environment sets them up, they're kind of destined to fail. They've they've been set up in a way that, well, actually, because you're acquiring knowledge in a certain way, it is going to be really difficult to transfer and it's not really your fault. So for instance, one of the things I criticize um, in the book is the application Duolingo. And it's not because Duolingo is universally terrible, but because the way a lot of the app works is that they want you to translate sentences by picking words from a word bank. And if you really practice this skill, you can get really good at the Duolingo app. But it turns out that actually speaking a language isn't like picking out words from a word bank. It's actually, okay, I have to form full sentences that express my intention and I maybe don't have the word and I maybe have to fill in gaps. And there's all these little micro adjustments and skills and things of recalling that you have to do in real life that aren't like the app. So if you spent six months doing Duolingo, and you can't speak Spanish, you may convince yourself that either Spanish is way too hard, or that you're no good at learning languages. And I want to say that, like, no, that's not the case. The problem is that you were using this approach that was kind of setting you
0: up to fail from the start. Mm. Okay, so just I'm just gonna follow that vein before we go into principle Mm -hmm. number two, uh, which is focus, which I I definitely want to talk about. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But I'm jumping around here. No, 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 that's okay. It's beautiful. Um, yeah. Tell me a little bit about how does one, you know, because I embarked on in university, I learned German and Italian mm-hmm. um, because I, that okay, was yeah. part, part of what I what had to do with my music degree. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and again, even in that environment, it was, it was shoddy at best. What are some of the things that people need to know or, or should know around learning a new language? Because I do think that there are quite a few people whether it's for themselves or for the mm-hmm. children that they that they want to be able to teach or uh, or learn a new language. So, what are the, some of the the foundational pieces that you learned along your journey? Because you did French and how many other languages? Six or five? Um, yeah. So I, I would say that I can speak conversationally French,
1: Spanish, Portuguese, Korean, uh, Mandarin Chinese, and I have also learned a little bit of uh, Macedonian for my wife. Although I'm not conversational with it yet.
0: <laughs> just just the uh, like just the 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 asks. And the, and the cussing.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Just, just a little bit of stuff to, 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 um, when I, when I was visiting with their extended family and who don't speak English, so I was just using, learning a little bit to, to get by in those situations.
0: Okay. So what are some of the foundational principles that people need to know when it comes to learning a new language? So
1: there are different approaches to learning a language and they often depend on your purpose. So I want to suggest stress that my assumption here is that most people want to be able to have conversations in a language, probably for travel, but maybe eventually for work or studies or something like that. It is different, for instance, if you were to learn, let's say, a dead language, like if you want to learn classical Chinese, I would not necessarily approach it this way because having conversations in literary classical Chinese is probably not what you want to do. But if you want to approach conversations, the first place I would start is this directness principle, which I discuss in the book, which is, if you want to get good at conversations, you should have conversations. And most people, I think, want to wait until they're ready to have a conversation. So I don't know enough, so I'm not ready to have a conversation. And the insight that Benny Lewis imparted upon me, and I was later able to apply in my own projects, is that you're actually ready to have a conversation in a new language right now. And it's pretty simple. You just open up Google Translate. (laughs) And you type in what they say, or if you don't know what they're saying, you can get them to write it down and you can type it and transcribe it. And then you repeat yourself and you have your own conversation. Now, this might not be the most fruitful conversation. I want to say that starting with absolutely zero knowledge is necessarily the most efficient approach. But I want to say that most people think, oh, well, I'm not ready yet because I tried to talk to someone and it didn't go well. Well, no, it's not going to go well. It's probably not going to go well unless you spent, you know, a decade studying it. Uh, it's probably not going to go well unless you actually practice it. And so my first starting point was that most people need to start speaking a lot earlier. Uh, I mean, Benny Lewis has this whole speak from day one philosophy. I don't know whether it has to be day one, but it definitely needs to be a lot earlier than most people have. The second thing I would say is that you need to actually um, practice working with the whole language. So a lot of people memorize vocabulary, which is an important part of the language. And it's often the important part. It Often knowing more words can straightforwardly improve your speaking skill, but it's not the only part. And it's not just grammar is not the only part and pronunciation is not the only part. There's a lot of little skills for doing it. So that's why to start with this directness of having conversations with people, because for instance, I'll I'll give a a little thing. One of the skills that I found super valuable for learning other languages was being able to quickly look up words on my phone when I didn't have them. Now, no language course is going to teach you quick phone translation skills, but that was one of the most important ones for actually dealing with situations in the first few weeks with a new language once you get that sort of base of actually speaking and practicing, then it's a matter of, okay, where are my weak points? So vocabulary is usually a weak point. So there's lots of ways you can acquire more vocabulary. If 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 it's a if you're getting into a point where you're speaking a lot, you can just practice speaking a lot in real situations. So you're looking them up on your phone. If you have difficulty remembering vocabulary, there's mnemonic techniques that you can use. I, I cover some in the book. Um, there are systems called space repetition systems that allow you to adequately store and recall lots of words so if if you encountered a word and then you you don't want to forget it space repetition systems can help with that so there's tons of tools to aid with learning to aid with studying with the language if you start with this right approach and so if you start with the kind of okay i'm going to try some sort of partial immersion some sort of immersive sort of situation where i'm actually using it a lot listening to people speak it actually speaking it myself, trying to understand what they're saying, using it in that situation, that kernel allows you to grow um, with the language a lot faster than if you spend it most of the time studying in a classroom and then try to transfer it to some kind of speaking activity. So you can apply this even if you're in a language class. The key is just you need to do something outside of the class because the class itself probably won't be enough.
0: Mm -hmm. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. Well, I think that 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 gives a, a good starting point and I'm sure that I could Uh, you know, hunt Mm -hmm. Benny down and have him on the show if I wanted to dig straight into language. But okay, so talk to me a little bit about focus. Uh, I think that this is something Mm -hmm. that we are oftentimes struggling to really maintain within our day to day lives. And I know for a lot of people, focus is something Mm -hmm. that they are wanting to cultivate more of. So along your journeys of learning, what did you learn about focus? and, And what do we need to know in order to quote unquote, sharpen our knife?
1: So I would say that the big problem with focus, well, there's two big problems with focus. One is that people have difficulty when we talk about doing something hard. So learning is often the hardest thing to do because if something we already know how to do. It's relatively easy. It's when something involves learning that it can be frustrating, that it can be difficult. And this ultra learning approach that I advocate is often the dive rather than wait approach that if something's going to be difficult, you might as well dive right in and immerse yourself and face that difficulty rather than try to dabble and slowly, slowly get better. Focus can often be difficult because we procrastinate, because we get distracted. Um, and these are these are just sort of generic problems that deal with working. So that's one of the things that I wanted to talk about. The second problem with focus is that learning is very rarely the only thing that we have to do in our lives. We have to work, we have to you know, deal with our family, we have to um, do household errands and chores and exercise. And there's a million other things on our agenda So it can often feel like, well, I don't have, you know, 15 hours a day to be learning this subject really intensively, even if I do really want to learn it. And so what I tried to talk about in the book, and and I I looked at uh, Mary Somerville, who was the uh, story that I used in that chapter, and I found her story really fascinating because she was quite an accomplished woman, um, 18th century Scotland, and she learned a lot of incredible things, um, including, you know, advanced mathematics and botany and languages and painting and all sorts of things. But she was also a Scottish housewife and had kids and had a culture surrounding her that basically said well you know what you're doing isn't important so we can interrupt you at any time with any frivolous thing that we want you to do and you have all these other duties and obligations that aren't your sort of main source of prestige and uh, what i found really interesting about her was just her ability to work around that so that if she had you know She's working on this, she gets interrupted, okay, I'm going to get back and get started working on this again, or I have 20 minutes here, I'm going to make use of it. And so the sort of ultra learning ethos that I try to talk about is, you know, don't wait for perfect situations. Don't wait for the situation where, okay, I have full time for six months, I can work on this. How can I apply the right principles to learning something, even if it's just half an hour a week, or even if it's just, you know... Uh, on my commute, or even if it's just, you know, applying it here and there, or even if it's just taking something I'm already doing for my job and, and applying it a little better. So focus for me is not just about having that ideal crystallized, you know, your way in a log cabin studying perfectly, but how do you make use of the fact that most of our lives are quite distracted and still get stuff done?
0: Awesome. I love it. I, I love that definition, The you know, the unpacking of how we can start to implement that. And, uh, you know, I wish that we uh, could just do like the the Joe mm. Rogan style three hour deep dive in, <laughs> into some of this and, and, you know, maybe I'll have you back on the show to, to do some of that, but, um, I would love that. but we're going to have to wrap up here soon. Uh, so just, you know, I know that we, we sort of touched on the first yeah. two principles. What else stands out for you about this methodology? Like what else do people need to know about learning and, and ultra learning that, that you just want to leave them with?
1: Well, you know, I want to just end on a little bit of a less practical note and on a little bit more aspirational note, just because this has been sort of what my life's been about for the last 10 years. And I I do hope people read the book and I do hope they find it valuable. But the main thing that I want to try to convince people of is not just to learn something, you know, okay, learn French because then you speak another language or or to, you know, get better at some skill for your career, even though I think those things are great. But it's really that I think our greatest moments in life come from when we overcome some personal limitation, that when we do something that we thought was impossible for ourselves, and then later be like, well, if I could do that, what else could I do? And I know it's a little bit, you know, (laughs) it's a little bit gushy right now. But this was really, for me, the experience of, of going through this ultra learning project. And it was the experience of many of the people who I talked to had had these projects that it wasn't just that they did this project, which maybe had some value and maybe brought them some success in life but that they rethought themselves and rethought what they could accomplish. And so that's what I want to leave with people now is don't think about ultra learning just in terms of, well, this is a skill or something, something else I should be doing in my life. Rather think about it as a way of approaching something so that you could redefine who you are. And really, if you can go through this experience and I I really hope some of your listeners today will try to do some kind of ultra learning project. If you can go through this experience then it will really show you that there's a lot more that you could do that you haven't ever considered before. And that that was really my inspiration for writing the book and, and what I'd like to leave your listeners with today.
0: Awesome. I love it. I love it. I think that's such a great, uh, great message to end on. And I uh, appreciate all of your wisdom around learning and some of the pieces that you brought thanks. to the show today really is impactful and i love supporting another canadian guy out there doing, doing, <laughs> thanks, some, doing some great work uh so for everyone that's out there listening definitely uh, head on over we'll have the links in the show notes to check out ultra learning it is going live uh tomorrow morning so you can either pre-order right now today Uh, or depending on when you're listening to this, it launches on August 6th. Uh, So it might already be live depending on when you are tuning into this. Uh, So definitely head on over, check that out uh, and check out some of the work that Scott has done. He's got a great TED talk. He's got some videos about his experience uh, with MIT, with the language learning And uh, I found them incredibly fascinating as I was digging in and doing some research on him. So definitely head on that uh, over and check that out. Don't forget to leave us a rating and review. Subscribe on iTunes, on Google Play, Spotify, whatever platform is your favorite because we are on all of them now. (laughs) And, And until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off.